Well, let's get started. Good afternoon. Um, happy Year of the Ram, Gonghei Fat Choi. And welcome to the February 26, 2015 meeting of the City and School Joint Select Committee. I'm your chair, Supervisor Jane Kim, and I am joined by Supervisors Norman Yee and David Campos, and Board of Education Commissioners Sandra Lee Fewer and Hydra Mendoza. Um, I understand that Commissioner Wins um, is not able to attend um, today's meeting, um, and we do have our clerk, Derek Evans, um, from the City. I also want to recognize SFGovTV, Jennifer Lowe and Charles Kremenak, um, who uh, tape each of our meetings and make them available to the public um, online and at SFGovTV channel um, so that the public can also watch our meetings. But I just have to say it's really great to see, actually, um, the family back together. Um, both Supervisor Yu and I served on the school board, and Supervisor David Campos served as our general counsel. So it's, it's like a mini reunion um, here in chamber. All right, uh, with that, are there any announcements from the clerk's office? There are no announcements, Madam Chair. Can you please call the first item? Item number one is a hearing requesting presentations from the San Francisco Unified School District, Department of Children, Youth, and Their Families, Controller's Office, and the Mayor's Office of Education on the current statistics and data of the City and County of San Francisco's pre-kindergarten and transitional kindergarten programs. Thank you. Um, so we called for this hearing um, a few months ago at the suggestion of one of our Board of Education um, commissioners. And, uh, you know, with the, the coalescing of, of our pre-K programs under human service agencies, um, Department of Children, Youth and Their Families, and First Five Commission, um, this committee is interested in hearing um, a little bit more on the demographics of students who are served in these programs, an analysis of the achievement gap between students who did um, get to attend our pre-K programs and those did, that did not, um, and inf information on how we can achieve universal pre-K, um, where um, you know the vision that every um, pre-kindergarten student has access um, to childhood education in San Francisco um, can be realized, um, something that I know many people in this room have worked really hard to obtain. Um, before that, I did want to open up with comments um, from committee members. Um, I want to start with Commissioner Mendoza and then Supervisor Yi. Wonderful. Thank you, um, Supervisor Kim. Uh, I'm really delighted that we have uh, Barbara Carlson, Laurel Klumach, and Carla Bryant here this afternoon to present on the Preschool for All um, as well as the uh, TK programming and what the city and school district are doing in combination. Um, I just wanted to say that over the many years that all of the departments have been working diligently on educating our youngest residents. Um, it's great to have the partnerships that we have with all of the departments really focused on doing what's best for our youngest um, people. And the new Office of Early Care and Education um, is bringing all of that together while still working with those that have been doing the work for so long. And I'm just really um, happy that we've been able to bring it all under one roof so that we can leverage services and resources for our youngest um, residents and their families. And so this is a really important topic for, for me as a former preschool teacher and as a mother. Um, and I actually miss the preschool days, but, uh, but I'm over it now. Um, and really look forward to hearing the update on how our, how our young people are doing. So thank you all for being here. Thank you, Chair uh, Kim. First of all, I, I feel like this meeting is sort of off. 
in terms of the timing of the meeting. I feel like it should be at six o'clock when the school board actually meets. <laughs> yeah, really. It feels weird to see all of you at at three thirty. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I think this is. I'm thrilled to have this uh, um, on the agenda in regards to the, pre the preschool piece and also the the um, the um, traffic safety piece on this. Um, the preschool piece, I think, is is very timely at this point. There's uh, not only are we pretty much have all the right pieces put together now to make take us to the next level, I guess I, I may say. Um, and I have to say, when I said take us to the next level, we're already at a very high level relative to the rest of the nation. Uh, when when the Secretary of Education repeatedly, <coughs> repeatedly come back here over and over again saying, how do you guys do this in San Francisco? Because we, we're really looking at, at you guys as a model for the nation in terms of uh, early education, preschool, and so forth. And as you know, um, the Obama administration has, has really um, picked up the, 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 the banner in, on this and saying, yeah, let's go for it. Um, at, at the, at the uh, local level, the mayor had mentioned it so many times in the last few months. Um, I just feel like, okay, with leadership up and down, whether it's from the school board or the uh, board of supervisors, the mayor, uh, our president, and maybe the governor might even follow suit at, one to uh, at some point. Um, uh, we just hope for that. So this is a good time for us to really look at how we can work together to bring us to the next level. So I'm real thrilled to have everybody here. Thank you, Supervisor Yi. And it's really great to have um, some folks in the room that I, I believe have been really the representatives and the stalwarts and advocates for pre-K um, in this hearing as well from the policymaker end. So um, I'd like to uh, bring up Barbara Carlson, um, who the mayor hired in 2013 to lead um, the city's early education coordination and realignment efforts. Um, but before Barbara, um, I'm sorry, we have the first five director, Laurel Klumach, um, presenting the data points that we requested. Um, and we also do have um, SFUSD's chief of early education, Carla Bryant, um, to present on transi uh, transitional kindergarten. Well, good afternoon, members of the select committee. Um, my name is Laurel Klumach. I'm the executive director of First Five San Francisco. Um, as you know that um, I've had the privilege of overseeing the Preschool for All initiative in San Francisco for the last 10 years. So I am going to present first, we have our, I think we have our show well coordinated. I'm going to present the current PFA data, um, followed by Barbara and then followed by Carla. So, um, the first slide shows um, how we've improved access to high-quality preschool for four-year-olds since 2005. And you can see it's a straight heads-up um, directory. We currently are served, we've gone from uh, no children in 2004 up to 3,800 3, children in 2014. Uh, this slide is showing um, the ethnicity of our children that are participating in Preschool for All versus the citywide population of birth to five-year-olds. Um, as you can see with the chart, uh, the PFA children, uh, uh, Asian and Latino American children combine and represent 61% of our total PFA enrollment. 
And I think you see uh, why this is, is because we've had a real emphasis on, on helping children from low-income communities accessing preschool, um, start, and we started that way rolling out. This next slide, which I think is impressive when you compare it to other um, communities in California and the nation, shows that we have increased preschool attendance of four-year-olds in San Francisco. Um, we have an 83% enrollment in preschool in San Francisco, which is really high. Um, but we're especially proud that we have seen an increase in our African-American students from 68% to 79%, and for our Latino students from 54% to 80%. Uh, this slide uh, talks a little bit about family income. Uh, we compared uh, uh, children who were PFA when they were entering kindergarten with other non-PFA children. And you can see by this slide that 70% of our PFA students um, are, uh, um, earn um, $35,000 per year or less. Um, and again, that's because we really try to uh, reach out to the low-income communities first, um, including all the children in the district and in Head Start. Uh, this slide just gives you a little breakdown of who, uh, where our preschool for all children attend. 66% uh, of our students are served in nonprofits. These are Title V and are subsidized uh, child care centers and preschools. 26% are from our public agencies, the school district and city college. Uh, we have 5% uh, PFA children are in family child care homes, and 3% come from uh, private nonprofits. Uh, this slide shows uh, um, about our kindergarten readiness. We did a um, work with applied survey research to do uh, an external evaluation of incoming kindergartners. Uh, and we compared them to the children who were in preschool for all with those that uh, were not, did not come from PFA. And you can see that the children that participated in preschool for all showed an increase in their early literacy skills, in their early mathematics skills, and even more impressively in their self-regulation skills. So we are with this research, it was a battery of tests, we are feeling and have evidence that children who participate in a high-quality PFA program are um, getting closer to um, kindergarten readiness. Okay. Thank you, Laurel. Um, Hello, members of the Select Committee. I'm Barbara Carlson, the Director of the Office of Early Care and Education. So on this next slide, what we tried to represent was um, the last census count of the total number of four-year-olds in the city and county of San Francisco, which is to your left, 6,209. So now I'm going to bring you to your all the way to the right side of the slide. Currently, um, the projected enrollment in preschool for all is 3,800 students this year, fiscal year 14, 15, 61% of that um, figure. Um, we project next year that we will expand by 550 children. This is um, uh, uh, mostly due to the efforts of the first five staff in developing what is called the PFA pipeline, which is getting programs ready 
to be able to comply with the very stringent requirements of the Preschool for All program to ensure quality and kindergarten readiness. So we expect to have a big jump the next year, 15-16, and then we're moving in fiscal year 16-17 to serving a total of 75% of the four-year-olds at bringing the figure to about 4,660. The reason that we've projected up to 75% over the next two years is if you look at the national literature, what's considered universal for a pre-K program is between 65% and 80%. That's the national average, and there's all sorts of reasons that that's the case. We decided to pitch our goal a little bit higher with going to 75%, although 65% would be considered universal in the rest of the country. We wanted to talk a little bit about the targets for enrollment for fiscal year 16-17, because that's really the groups that have been hardest to bring into the program. So the first category is religious-affiliated preschool programs. First Five has done a great job working with many of those providers in the city to try to help them adapt their curriculum so that they could meet the requirements of Preschool for All and participate. So more of that work will go on. In 16-17 and leading up to 16-17. Next bullet to bring in additional family child care homes. The percentage is a bit lower. It's a bit more challenging for the family child care providers to get to the point that they can meet some of the requirements. And again, First Five has done a wonderful job of working with those providers, many of whom are in the office's Family Child Care Quality Network. And we're going to keep working with the family child care group to bring that enrollment up. And lastly, we do know at HSA there are statistics that indicate the number of three- and four-year-old children who are accessing a subsidy, usually through the CalWORKs program. Their families are using license-exempt care, which is family, friend, and neighbor care. And mostly the reason they're doing that is to bring extra income into the family. And so we'd like to work on some sort of a pilot where we can actually offer part-day preschool through the PFA program to some of these kids and still keep some income coming into the family for part of the day. So those will be our target areas. Thank you. Carla? Just really quickly, I got a note that um, the TVs aren't on, so the public can't see. Yes, ma'am. Jim, making the request right now with media services. Right. Thank you. Get started. Uh, greetings. My name is Carla Bryant. I am the Chief of Early Ed with San Francisco Unified School District. And if I may take a little bit of a liberty here, I'd like to also say I have here with me my wonderful, wonderful team. Um, uh, my Executive Director of Programs in Schools, my Executive Director of Program Quality and Enhancement, our TK um, Supervisor, and one of our amazing site administrators, uh, Candice Lee from Noriega. What are the other two names of your staff? Hmm? What are the names of your staff? You just said Candace. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Candice Lee, Kathleen Dominguez, Dr. Aliva Hughes, and um, Minu Yashar. Oh, of course, and one of my, um, I think she's on our staff, I think we're all together, is Ingrid uh, Mesquite. 
thank you for letting me do that. Um, I, the running joke is I always come with a team because this work is around, around team. I, I'm going to take a little time to talk to you about transitional kindergarten. And the way I'm going to do it is, one, describe what is TK, how did SFUSD roll out TK, where are the TK transitional kindergarten uh, classrooms and sites located, what are the demographics of the TKers, and exactly what is the... We get a copy? Yes. Oh. Everyone should have a copy. I don't... I don't have a copy either. Oh, there they are. Oh, slideshow. I don't need this. Okay. Oh, it's actually up there now. Then I do need to press slideshow. What are the demographics of the students who attend TK? And then just, um, and I, I say this very cautiously, people who know me, I have a hard time sharing data because I think we need to be responsible around putting out information, but we are going to share some preliminary data. And it's preliminary because it's only two years worth of data, and one needs three or five years to feel confident that the data you're sharing is exactly what you think it should be telling you. So what is TK? Uh, in 2010, uh, the Kindergarten Readiness Act, authored by Senator Joe Semidian, changed the date for kindergarten. Created, what happened was it was a creation of transition kindergarten for children who must turn five by September the 2nd. And the students who were born between September the 2nd and December the 2nd are now considered transitional kindergartners. I, we actually call it the 90-day window. So this TK is the first year of a two-year kindergarten program. It is funded identically to how uh, students are funded in the K-12 system. The kindergarten entry date was changed in a rollout that literally every uh, year the date was moved back by 30 days or one month. So in 2012 and 13, the date was moved back to November the 1st. So the students who were born between November the 1st and December the 1st were transitional kindergartners. That same methodology was used the following year to move it back 30 more days. And then finally, we're in our last year of rolling out or implementing transitional kindergarten with the children who were born within those 90 days. And then what will happen thereafter is that any child born in those days will have to be will have the option of being in kindergarten or TK. So what are the options for children who are born in those 90 day, that 90-day window? One is that parents may enroll in a district pre-K program or in a community-based uh, pre-K program. Students do not have to actually attend TK. So the option is either pre-K or other alternative methods that are, that are aligned with the parents' belief system or transitional kindergarten. And I, I, I want to take time to say that this is actually, we think, a very good thing, that parents actually can look at their, their, their own child and decide, do I want my child to stay in pre-K? And we're okay with them being in pre-K in the district or in the community. 
And to give you an example of the partnership between the district and the community-based pre-K programs is that we have Dr. Jerry Yang here today uh, from the Kai Ming uh, Head Start program, who we have an amazing partnership with. And this was a partnership that he actually introduced to us, which was for us to participate in activities with the Asian uh, Museum. So our, our, um, school, our centers that are located at Tule Elk, Noriega, and Commodore share this partnership with the Kaiming staff where they go through professional development together and they visit the museum. So we have students uh, who are in pre-K and TK from both, uh, from both Kaiming and from the district who are partnering together. So this option is actually a really good option for families. Um, that they can either put their kids in TK or continue to have their children in another type setting. Transitional ki uh, kindergarten three-year phase in. In the first year that we phased in, we had seven classrooms at five sites. And as the years went on, we, we've added classrooms and we've added sites till today. Uh, we, this year, we have 22 classrooms and 14 sites. And then next year, we will grow by one more site and one more classroom. And we're projecting the following year, we will uh, grow two more uh, classrooms and two more sites. So where are the sites located? Um, Visitation Valley, Bayview. This is a list of where they're currently located. But I think the next slide really demonstrates how diverse our TK sites are and where they're located, which is the map of, S of San Francisco. The red ones are where we are currently operating sites, and the yellow are the three sites that we hope to open in the next two years. So we are well positioned around the city so we can actually accommodate many families uh, in the same way that we try to do with pre-K. TK by ethnicity. Carla. The great thing about TK is that it's open and available to all who are interested. No matter the, the social economic standards of the families, it's just like kindergarten. And so our TK reflects demographically what our, TK, our kindergartens also look like. So we have a wide range of students. And the codes we have here are the codes that are used by EPC. <clears throat> and you can see each year the numbers are, are growing in each, in each area. What are the characteristics of a TK classroom? Or the, the, and we don't call it a program because it's actually a grade. Transitional kindergarten is a grade. First is that we must have a multiple subject credential teacher in the same way we must have in the K-12 system. We in San Francisco, which I think is amazing, actually have a six-hour full-day TK. That is not necessarily true across uh, the state. Each district, was, every district was not mandated to do, to do TK. You only had to do TK if you had two or more kindergarten classrooms. And the TK had to be at a minimum exactly how you had your kindergarten. Well, in California, all kindergartens are not full day. But again, in San Francisco, we're lucky in that we have full day kindergarten. Therefore, our TK is also full day. Um, the two other bullets just give you an example of how we are meeting the requirement that our TK class, our TK curriculum 
must not be pre-K and it must not be K. It must be a specially designed uh, curriculum that meets the developmental needs of the students. So we have students who are, four years ago, they would have been in kindergarten. So we actually, uh, I think we do a really good job of designing a program that meets the needs of children based on their developmental, uh, their developmental uh, level. Um, and we use the uh, standards from both pre-K and from kindergarten. And we overlap them and we move the students based again on where they are. And this is just an example of the continuum between pre-K, TK, and K. Again, preschool social emotional uh, skills are taught directly. And if I get, again, I'm going to take liberty. I'm sorry. But I, I have to thank First Five. One of the things that um, has been very interesting to me is to see how the K-12 system has discovered social emotional. That social emotional is a very important thing to, to have for children K and above. Interesting enough, pre-K in the early ed world has always known the importance of social and emotional. And one of the things that First Five has provided for us is an amazing process called Teaching Pyramid that not only were we able to do in pre-K, but we're doing in TK, and we're rolling out Teaching Pyramid into the kindergarten and the Bayview and, and the mission zones. So again, showing how the continuity of the work starts not only in pre-K, but moves up into the K-12 system. So I'm going to stop here, and I'm going to walk you through the next two graphs. And I only have uh, three more slides here. But I think this, this is just, let me say this, this is just preliminary data. It's only two years' worth of data. So what we did was take a snapshot of all entering kindergartners. So if you see column one, column one said in school year 13, 14, these are your kindergartners. And of the kindergartners in column two, there was a subset, which is three rows down, where it says San Francisco Unified School District TK. There were a subset of kindergartners that came from TK. All other students are considered non-TK students. Non-TK. Now, they, it doesn't mean that they were not in pre-K in SFUSD, but they were not definitely in TK. So how many students did we have total? There were 5,000 kindergartners in 13-14, which is last year. And of those 5,100 students, 4,900 of them about were students who never went to TK. And about 174 were actual TK students in SFUSD. So we took just simply a, an assessment tool that we use for all of our kindergartners, which is called Fontes and Pinnell. And we looked at how did they do on the assessment. And we took the mid-year assessment because that is where we had the majority of our students being assessed. The, the beginning assessment, we were missing so many students. Uh, and that's because they entered at different times. There are just many reasons why that first assessment, we didn't have as many. If you go over to where it says there was a subset of students who didn't have the F&P, the Fontes and Pinnell, and it's a very small, it's about 15, 16%. But of the ones who actually had a Fontes and Pinnell assessment mid-year, of the students who did not attend TK, 62% either exceeded or were at benchmark. 
But the students who actually participated in TK, it is 78%. And then, of course, the next row shows the number that are below. So this was our first year of TK students. So compared to the non-TK students, we are, the TK students are 16% above the non-TK students. So that extra year seems to allude to, and I am very cautious about this, that that extra year made a difference. So what happens the second year? In the second year, <coughs> the numbers actually go up for both set of kids. The non-TKers, who just get, went straight into kindergarten, 66% were at, they exceeded or at approaching expectations. But if you were in TK, it was 84%. So again, showing that there may be, and I'm cautiously saying, an advantage to being in that TK grade. There is a last slide on here that I added that is not on um, the presentation, but one of the things we're doing that this data actually presented a lot of questions for us. So we're actually working with Stanford to help us go deeper with our conversation. Which students were not ready? Why were they not ready? Why are the numbers actually going up for both groups? And we anecdotally kind of know why that's happening. It's because the work that's happening in pre-K, not only in the district, but also in the community around understanding what literacy means to students at this time, is actually starting to influence the pre-Kers who are actually entering K. So those numbers are starting to go up. And it also says the 10 years of amazing work that San Francisco has done around pre-K is starting to show results in the actual kindergarten entry. Now, I'm going to say this again, we still have a lot of studying to do on the data, but it does look promising. Okay, so um, Carla, thanks for being here. I know that you have a flight to catch. Um, so if folks actually have questions um, uh, for Carla and other staff members, um, why don't we start with Supervisor Yi? Um, and I also just want to recognize that Maria Su, um, Department Head for uh, DCYF is here as well. Okay, um, since um, Carla needs to catch a flight, can I ask a few questions? And thanks for your presentation. Um, it looks good. Um, the, in, in trying to flush, flush out the last few pages, um, one of the things that, um, one of the questions that occurred to me was of the non, of the f close to 5,000 students that did not go through pre-K, a TK, um, do you know what percent of those would have gone to some preschool of some sort and, and whether or not you had, um, there's enough data to separate those 5,000 students between those that went to pre preschool and those that didn't, and to look at those uh, results, my guess is that the the gap between um, how they did in kindergarten would be even greater. Uh, you're asking the exact, that is just an amazing question. That's the same question that we're asking ourselves, is that can we dig into the data enough to understand first which ones went to pre-K 
and where did they go to pre-K? <coughs> Uh, which we think also informs us. We can figure out which ones are SFUSD, and that's going to take a little work because, unfortunately, we still do have two different systems of looking at our kids. We have a pre-K system that is starting to speak to our K system, but we haven't got to the place where we can extract out that data easily. But that is the first set of data that we can start to look at is which ones are SFUSD, which actually would be... Uh, um, a very high percentage because we have about 800 to 850 kindergarten, uh, preschoolers that go into kindergarten every year. Um, so to answer your question, yes, we could start to do that, but it's going to take a little work. Um, and so hopefully we'll be able to answer, to, uh, answer that question next year at this time. Yeah, because I think one of the pieces that um, some of my colleagues may, uh, may be interested in is because as we move forward, uh, uh, the questioning I have is really not specific to the school district, but overall, as we move forward, you know, who 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 are the uh, children that we're not serving, and how we're going to serve them? And then when when I look at these, and you know, I, as you probably can imagine, the next question would be, what ethnic group is is in the yes. TK, uh, which you have, uh, but uh, which ones didn't get the TK, and how do we get them there? And if we were, it's not even TK, I mean, it could be just preschool, mm -hmm. pre-K in general. Then the next question would be, uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm asking it very generically. Anybody want to address it is fine. Um, the next question would be, um, I don't know why Arnie Duncan said that um, there's 2,000-something kids or whatever. I don't know where he got those numbers from. And 50% of them didn't have an opportunity. If that's true, something's wrong, right? Um, so, um, but part of it is also, we know there are probably kids that do qualify, especially for Title V, uh, that income level, and yet um, if we were to get enough resources, the next question would be, do we have the capacity in terms of space? Uh, whether it's in, in the school district, can we, can we offer more or not in, uh, outside of the school district? Um, I'm running a bunch of questions so that you can answer whatever you want. Um, <laughs> I know you have to rush out of here. Uh, but uh, those are some of the questions I have. I have more, but... Um, just quickly, I think that's a good question, and I think we could probably unpack that number. Uh, we know how many kids are going into... We know how many PFA children are in the district, and we know how many PFA children are in the community that come into the district, and we know some things about their... We know about their readiness as compared to non-PFA. Um, we also know... Uh, and Barbara's slide showed it. We know, uh, we do know, Norman, who the children, the four-year-olds are at least, that have not accessed and who and where and who they are. We know that. I think the Arnie Duncan number included three and four-year-olds, and I think it was based on census data, so it was confusing. Do you have anything else you want to add at this point? Oh, okay. Um, uh, and then I, to add to what you, um, you asked, Supervisor Yee, um, first of all, to clarify about the Arnie Duncan um, op-ed, that data was obtained 
erroneously clearly from the state, not from us locally. So that's number one. And what he did, what they did was they looked only at the CSPP, which is the California State Preschool Program. They didn't look at the broader number of Title V subsidies, because if you look at all kids who are eligible, three and four-year-olds, for state subsidies, we actually are serving over 90 percent of them in San Francisco. And almost all of those four-year-olds are in PFA, and many of the three-year-olds are. Um, in terms of your question about space, um, I think, as you know, we've begun to do an initial analysis at the office about what the space needs might be for the expansion. And I don't have those numbers with me. We can get them to the committee. But it looks as though there will be some space need for new construction, but that there also are existing classrooms in some facilities, including the school district, that could be used for expansion. And then that's, that would be really important for us to know because uh, it's, it's, I'm looking further out. Right. And we're, they're talking 200,000 more people. And right. So it, right. we don't the even have the capacity for, for, the, for the kids that we're serve, trying to serve now. Right. Then we better get fast, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Put things on the fast track. Yeah. Okay. So we'll, we, we've been doing some preliminary analysis, but we'll bump that up and get that back to the committee. Um, um, one more. Oh, were you going to answer some? I, I was just curious. I looked at um, the map, mm -hmm. and uh, as you know, uh, uh, unlike the school board, where the school board members represent the whole school district, uh, <laughs> four of the supervisors represent the district. Mm -hmm. And did, did you, um, I know that there's some yellow stars there. I figured out one now. I guess those are on that map where you have red stars and yellow stars, gold stars or whatever. The gold one must represent the, uh, the uh, ones in the future. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's, in, in my district, there's none, red, gold, or anything. So um, I'm, I'm sorry, I have to do this uh, to sort of rep represent my district. Mm -hmm. Any plans, because I, I've actually spoken to some parents in my district to say, oh, you know, uh, there's nothing around here. Um, I, I'd like to hear some thoughts around that. Yes. Um, so for the sites, uh, let me say, first of all, in two years over, we will be equally split between early ed sites and elementary sites. Uh, we initially rolled out TK into early ed because it was easier. We had the space. But now what is occurring is principals are actually trying to figure out if they have space to, uh, to do a TK. We're also, from my understanding, we, we have a, a larger number of K now. Uh, for some areas, and so it is, it's a space issue. It, it truly is a space issue, uh, making sure that we have places where we can actually put a TK. And we have been approached by a couple of principals, and what we are doing is we are walking everyone through a process, which is not only do you have the space, have you talked to your community? Have you informed uh, your supervisors. I mean, there's a, a lot that you have to go through to actually get a TK. So I will tell you that yes, we, we our goal is to have TK in all the areas, um, and we've worked towards that. But in the end, it's going to come down to space. So if you if, so, please direct your principals to us, and we will work with them. Does it, does it have to be? In a space where there's a K, K5, or can it be a standalone? It can be both. Uh, but some of our standalones. I, I think there were plans to have some, uh, some school go into the, I don't even know what it's called anymore, Laguna Honda, uh, on 7th Avenue, 
and I don't know if that's being used in their class. I mean, it's built for a school. Um, is that true, uh, my school board members, colleagues? Um, could you repeat the question, Supervisor? Well, I, I, I guess I, the question is, is, you know, about space issues. Right. And so I understand there's space issues. So I asked the question, does it have to be on a site where there's a K-5 program? And, or could it be a standalone? So there's some places in, I just gave an example of, I don't know what it's called anymore, it's the, the, the Laguna Honda School or on 7th Avenue that, um, you know, they fixed it all up and someone, they were yes. going to move in the program yes. and um, I don't know if it actually happened, I don't think so. so. Oh, yes, so that site, um, Supervisor, is I think the site of Independence High School now. Yes. Yeah, so we moved Independence High School from the Outer Sunset to that site, and so it's being used by. Okay, our, no. For example, then I'm, I just didn't realize it. I, I keep on looking over there, and I drive by there, and. I, yeah, no, um, it, it is a beautiful site, but also, um, Supervisor, for kindergarteners now we are 106 percent over capacity. Mm -hmm. So I think the space issue is a big issue, but I can see why principals would want a TK because it gives them an extra year and also it's so aligned mm -hmm. to what's happening in kindergarten that it would bring up their achievement. Mm -hmm. I could see why they would want it in their schools. Okay, Commissioner Fewer. Yes, so Carla, thank you so much for this presentation. The only thing I would ask for additional information is this 2013-2014 mid-year Fontos and Pinnell assessment, could I have that by race, please? Mm -hmm. Thank you very mm -hmm. much. Um, oh. Who would, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead, Supervisor. I'm just curious, um, um, maybe Laurel, um, Ms. Kuma, um, the, in regards to the pre Pre-K for all. Um, s some of the programs would be sort of standalone, um, or you know, part day, part year. And I'm just curious: um, are there programs where they, they're actually using this funding to what we call wraparound, so that they're creating like using okay. other fundings to create a whole full day? Yeah. And do you know what percentage? I mean, Ingrid probably knows that, but um, I don't know the percentage, but we are doing, we're doing a lot of stacking of the PFA on top of the subsidy, Head Start on top of the subsidy, Title V, but we can get you that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Very high, close to 90%. Okay. No, no, I, I, I thought maybe, especially with the, um, the, uh, the nonprofits. Well, and I think that that's what we wanted to do is create full day, and we did it by the stacking, yeah. Thank you. Um, I just had a few follow-up questions. First of all, thank you for all of this data. This is really helpful. I think it confirms what a lot of people, a lot of us believe in the room, um, that there is a value to pre-K, and also um, in helping us close the achievement and opportunity gap, which we know begins the first day of kindergarten. So it's great to see that some of these data points um, research is, you know, already, uh, you know, kind of in-house and that we can actually uh, 
evaluate the effectiveness of these programs. And I know data is not everything, and I really appreciate um, Ms. Bryant talking about how these snapshots only provide kind of one perspective, but they do provide a perspective, and that's great to see. Um, I was wondering, I, I know that there was a lot of evaluation for those that are in preschool for all, but I assume that there are a number of families that opt into kind of private and Catholic school um, preschools. And is there any way to kind of get a sense of then if we add those families in, you know, what percentage we're hitting in terms of uh, pre-K I, enrollment? I think we, we do have a good sense of the private nonprofits that are not part of PFA. Mm -hmm. um, and and some what the reasons that they're not um, they're not choosing to come into PFA, uh, but we can get you that number because we know the lay of the land. Yeah, no, I, I'm most curious why they don't choose the program. I know families like to have a variety of options, and they may decide fit and otherwise. I'm just kind of curious the, the overall penetration rate of those that are attending preschool. We have a good, like we said, we have about an 83% penetration rate in preschool a little less in terms of PFA, but we have a really good penetration rate. That's why I think we stand out when we yeah. compare us to other communities across the country. Do we know how we do in comparison to other cities? Oh, oh yeah. Way We're way, way above. That's why Arnie Duncan we comes should talk of, I, you know? Maybe because I, yeah, maybe you all, maybe everyone knows that. And I don't think the general public in the San Francisco yeah. realizes how successful we've yeah. been around yeah. universal pre-K. It is kind of, um, you know, in a lot of mayoral speeches in New York and in Oakland um, and around the country, but I feel like we don't do enough to tout our own success here locally um, because I feel like I'm not even completely aware of how how high the penetration rate is for pre-K. Well, it's interesting. In my outside of San Francisco, everybody knows about San Francisco's <laughs> you know, well-established universal preschool. We're the first city in the country, really, to have a universal preschool that was endorsed by the mayor. So it's, and it's quite amazing, and it's been going on for a long time. And I was also, you know, I'm really glad that we're looking at kind of also emotional um, education as well. And i just curious, what, what do you mean by self-regulate? Like, what does that mean? That's like being able to take turns, being able to delay so, gratification, but, you know, all the things that you need um, really to be successful in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And it's the one thing that kindergarten teachers, they will tell us, they know what a, PFA, a child who's gone through PFA because they have developed some of those skills. Mm -hmm. so it's mm -hmm. really important sort of executive functioning skills. And um, finally, I, you know, one comment I'll make, I was going to make the same comment that Supervisor Yee was about the transitional K programs, but I then saw the yellow stars in the tenderloin and south of the market. So I'm glad to see that that <laughs> is upcoming. I, I am curious as to how, you know, the school district projects building these classrooms when we do are seeing um, higher enrollment than spots available for kindergarten. And I know that a challenge for a school district with kindergarten and first grade, um, due to largely, I think, the building and fire code is that we now have to place these classrooms on the ground floor. So there's probably limited yeah. real estate. And so uh, I guess I'll just say, I won't ask a question, but I hope that in the planning groups that I know, um, Commissioner Mendoza is convening on behalf of the city and county with the planning department that we really think about how to project um, for elementary school enrollment and pre-K classrooms so that, you know, we're thinking about it as we put more yeah. density and more residents um, yeah. in our city yeah. and right. we can be prepped for that. Uh, uh, yeah. And then um, a final, oh, I, I, 
Actually, I don't know if this is a question more for Ms. Bryan or her staff, but I was curious why um, when transitional K, there was only an assistant teacher for the first, first four weeks of school. It seems like a very short time to have assistance and then yes. kind of be dropped off the cliff into yes, a hi. one to 22 ratio. Yes, um, Kathleen Dominguez, I'm the TK unit lead. Um, and that has been one of our challenges, um, having been a 16-year kindergarten teacher in SFUSD, when I lost my paraprofessional, it was heartbreaking, um, wow. very challenging. So we were able to secure funding um, to provide the paraprofessionals for the very first six weeks of school. However, I did offer it out to the site administrators that they could extend that time rather than going full day for the six weeks. They could go part day if they wanted. Um, Part of the legislation that we had hoped would would pass last year was to guarantee that there would be a, the additional paraprofessional for the entire year. Absolutely. And it's a very, very big transition for the children themselves that come from the preschools where the ratio is um, two to one, sometimes four to one. You know, it's very, very challenging. We've been able to create a little bit of funding at different sites where the site manager, the principals have decided to put more of their general funds towards that and to extend the time for their paraprofessionals. So that is one of our goals eventually, right. with the help of all of you, of course, to get that something, some sort of legislation passed. Where at the, the state level. At the yeah. state level. We've been please, working really hard. Please. Um, involve us, um, please involve the city, and I know the supervisors here um, are active in Sacramento, and um, we would love to help lobby um, for that type of funding, because I, I agree, one to 22 ratio, I, that is, that's really tremendous, that's a lot of work for that adult, um, and I think it's very dramatic for the young people that are in that classroom. It, it is, however, I do point out to the TK teachers at our very first few meetings that if we think about it, these TK kids, if we did not have them in transitional kindergarten, they would be in kindergarten, right. where understand. that ratio is still yeah. 1 to 22. So I try to give them that boost that it is being done and it can be done. And quite honestly, I try to really get the teachers to understand that's a perfect opportunity to get families involved for volunteer. Right. I had a rotation of 10 parent volunteers coming through my kindergarten classroom. So once my paraprofessional was no longer with me, the parents filled that role, and it really brought the community together. Mm -hmm. that, so that is something that I advocate for right mm -hmm. now. But yes, I will be coming to all of you for support in that. I've been working with um, Kathleen with the California Department of Education that she's spe specifically looking at transitional kindergarten and the ways that we can really keep making this program very strong. So we're aware of the ratio, and we're definitely working on it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, finally, and this is actually back to the preschool for all piece, I was a little concerned about um, the comment that was made that there are some families that choose to um, take the, uh, the subsidies, uh, were they federal subsidies, to do maybe childcare in homes or in their neighborhoods? Yeah, licensing. Do we have a sense of how to kind of provide some oversight around the quality? I understand families needing the additional income, and I... You know, and I'm glad that we're trying to figure out a way to do both. Um, but I, I just, uh, that just seems like such a difficult choice to put our families in. And I wish it wasn't an option, you know, at all. I mean, <laughs> but yeah, just some comments on that. And then I do want to be sensitive to the fact that we have one more hearing after this. Right. So 
Okay, very quickly, Supervisor Kim. Um, first of all, fortunately or unfortunately, parental choice is very much built into the federal uh, welfare to work and child care legislation. So we have to offer parents the choice of license exempt care. That's clear. Um, but at the Office of Early Care and Education, we're setting a performance metric for ourselves for next year to bring more of the families who are into lic in license exempt care into um, regulated care, and we hope that creating some sort of model options for part day pre-K will be part of that. So we recognize the issue. But again, um, it's, it, we've heard loud and clear from families, and this is not just a problem in San Francisco, all over the country. Um, families um, who are very, very low income, when they have an opportunity to use their sister or their mother whom they feel comfortable with, they do choose that option. But we're going to be working on trying to make some improvements there. Thank you. Thank you. So um, at this time, oh, I'm sorry, Commissioner Mendoza. Thank you. I'm just curious, um, in the, with the growth that we've had over the last couple of years, both with TK and pre-K, um, what's been the best outreach method or the most successful outreach method you've used? <coughs> you know, it, um, I think that PFA has been, become a brand over the last um, couple of years that uh, programs know about it and they know about the if you're a PFA program <coughs> you get several uh, different kinds of enhancements and so I'm saying it's a, a lot of it has to do with peer-to-peer -peer. Um, but I my our staff does a lot of outreach we know the programs that are in PFA <coughs> and those aren't we've wanted to get all the title five programs in so we created what we call pre-PFA so we've outreached to those programs that serve our lowest income children. We've provided them with coaching and technical assistance um, and other <coughs> kinds of enhancements as an incentive to getting in. So I think with the pre-PFA, the outreach to the programs where we know children are in that aren't in, um, and the word of mouth, I think it's why we've seen it. Yeah. Right. Thank you. And then I'm curious on the TK <clears throat> with um, do we know how many of our TK students stay in, and go into K? That, that go are, into kindergarten yeah, and SFUSD? Yeah. We don't have that number right now. I believe that's one of the numbers that Carla is working on right now. Since this is our third rollout, we'll get more of that information, so I can get that number to you. But in regards to the outreach of what you just said, we do use <coughs> the um, San Francisco Enrollment Fair is one of our really big outreaches. And then we also have preschool nights at our different standalone sites where we inf have parents come and visit and do more of an open house type of outreach for the program. Um, and I know you don't have this data, but, but do you think most of the kids that go through TK stay in? Yes. So we're not filling spots in kindergarten from kids that didn't, that didn't stay for TK? From my understanding from my friends that are still currently kindergarten teachers, many of our TK kids are staying in SFUSD and they're actually really thanking us for the work that they're doing. It's making their jobs go a little bit smoother at the beginning of the year, so. Thank you. Um, can you? So, Supervisor, um, for, to answer um, Commissioner Mendoza's question, I guess, it, I'm just speculating when I look at the numbers they gave us on, on, on the data here. It looks like at least around 80% from the first year of TK went into the uh, kindergarten. It was like 200-something, 15 
that went into transition uh, TK, and it was 170 something the next year that went into our public schools. So it looks like about 80 percent. Uh, but the question, I do have a question, um, um, and, and, and it's, it, I didn't realize that uh, you lose your your para uh, mid year or whatever. And as as much as it's, it's, we could say that kindergarten teachers could do this, uh, it's not an easy task um, for any kindergarten uh, teacher to do 22 kids. Um, let alone, I mean, the only caveat here, when you make that compare, not you, but we shouldn't make that comparison because um, you, we have to remember that these are the youngest if they were in a kindergarten class. So you wouldn't have 22 of them in that kindergarten class at that age. They're almost a year younger than most of the kids. Uh, and which, which to me then makes it even um, um, more valuable to have that that aid there. So here's a question from you: Can you get me information on when you cost out the um, having if you were to extend the para to be to go all the way the full year or whatever it is the school year? Mm -hmm. Uh, what's the cost, okay, and give to my office. Okay. Thank you. Okay, um, so at this time I want to open up for public comment and see if there's any public comment on this item. Seeing no public comment, public item comment is now closed. Um, I do want to entertain a motion to continue this item to the call of the chair. I know that Supervisor Norman Yee would love to do an update. Um, we do take off June, July, and August because of our conflicting recesses, but also it's very hard to schedule any room in City Hall in June because of budget committee. Um, and so uh, perhaps in the early fall, um, we can reconvene again for um, many of the follow-up, um, but also a continuation of discussion. I think this is a priority um, for all of us sitting here in this room. We want to be engaged and a part of, uh, of continuing to make this um, a real big success. So I just want to thank all the folks in this room. I know it's been a long um, process, but actually the outcomes have been really um, have been really fast, and it's great to see um, the work um, of a coalition of parents and teachers and education advocates, um, starting with the Public Education Enrichment Fund um, all the way through now, and want to really work to make sure that we're continuing to also support you in doing the outreach um, to some of our hardest-to-reach families um, and some of the targeted communities, but also to ensure that we are really fully funding these programs at a state um, and local level. So thank you. Um, our, are there any further comments from this committee? Okay, so can I take a motion to continue this item to the call of the chair? Uh, we have a motion, and we can do that without opposition. Mr. Clerk, can we please call the second item? Item number two is a hearing to receive an update on the Municipal Transportation Agency's traffic calming program, particularly the school criteria for funding, including an update of updated list of schools currently receiving funding through the program and potential criteria and physical solutions for schools that operate near heavy traffic arterials where lowering the speed limit by creating a school zone is not an option. Thank you. Um, and so just to give a little context to today's hearing, I think, you know, uh, this select committee body has often really struggled um, to bring forward issues uh, where really both um, the school district and the city um, are really both accountable to reaching goals. And um, one issue that has been um, that 
I know our office um, and Supervisor Yi's office has been working a lot on is uh, Vision Zero and pedestrian safety. Um, in particular, you know, we know that there's been a lot of partnerships uh, with the school district on how we can achieve um, Vision Zero um, within uh, within and around our schools. So last year I did introduce a hearing request to try to identify some solutions to traffic calming issues um, faced by schools in our district that don't necessarily fall into the mold of a neighborhood school within a residential enclave. Um, about two years ago we were able to work with the Department of Public Health um, and SFMTA to get for example, Bessie Carmichael K through eight into the safe, safe routes to school program, um, but realized that there we really needed a more robust strategy in dealing with pedestrian safety concerns surrounding the school. Um, how do we achieve 15 miles per hour um, when you're by a freeway um, or really close to the downtown core or a major corridor like Valencia um, or Cesar Chavez um, or Folsom Street? Um, I just really want to thank uh, in advance, actually just speaking from my district for the work that both departments have done with SFUSD, um, particularly around Bessie Carmichael and Vinalo, uh, Victoria Manalo Draves um, Park, um, working to uh, with SFMTA to identify capital improvements um, to achieve our Vision Zero goals um, in this area. And I know that um, there's been a ton of work also being done uh, with the Chinatown community around Gene Parker Elementary School, where we actually see some of our highest rates um, of vehicle and uh, student family collisions as well. So I, I've heard that actually our colleagues at the Board of Education may uh, be introducing uh, a vis Vision Zero resolution of their own to support it um, within our school. And today's hearing is really designed to identify how we can work um, collaboratively through all of our entities to really put together a robust pedestrian safety strategy um, to achieve that. We also know that a key component of Vision Zero is education. And so I think it's really apropos in working with the school district, we are raising um, our current and our future adult population of San Francisco. So how can we work with our families and our kids um, to encourage them to bike, walk um, to school, um, but also to understand how to share the roads as multiple users. So um, we have Darby Watson from SFMTA's Livable Streets program here to present. Um, and we also have um, Anna um, Validzik from the Department of Public Health who manages our Safe Routes to School um, program. Um, and uh, Kathleen and Bashir from the SFMTA Crossing Guard program, which I know Supervisor Yi has been a big promoter of here um, at City Hall. So are there any um, opening comments? All right. Great, thank you. Um, again, my name is Darby Watson. I'm with the Livable Streets Group. I'm a section leader, and I apologize ahead of time. I have a little bit of a cold. Um, before we get started, I wanted to share a really quick story about why I come to work every day, because there was an event that happened in 2010 that really changed my approach to my work in the transportation sector. Um, Raquel Nelson and her three kids stepped off the public bus in Marietta, Georgia in 2010 as night was beginning to fall. And with proper crosswalks more than a quarter mile in either direction, she had to decide whether to drag her three tired children a half a mile out of the way or to take her chances crossing a five-lane road. Her four-year-old made that decision for her by following another bus patron across the road. He ran ahead and was hit and killed by a driver under the influence who left the scene of the collision. 
Um, I come to work every day so that parents and children and adults and everyone in our city doesn't have to make that terrible choice. Um, I share this with you just so you can understand my commitment and my colleagues' commitments from SFMTA to what we do every day. And we're so lucky to get to come to work every day and make real changes and leave this city in a better place than we found it. In terms of uh, this presentation, I just wanted to give you an overview of some of uh, the SFMTA approaches to schools work. We have multiple programs. Uh, all of them are data-driven. We do extensive planning specifically for vulnerable populations, and we use criteria, specific criteria to prioritize our investments, and we rely on many agencies and community partners, including the Department of Public Health. Uh, there's three programs that I'm going to focus on today. Uh, self, self, Excuse me. Safe, safe Routes to School <laughs> is the program that you might be most familiar with, but there are many other uh, SFMTA programs that directly serve schools, and I'll also focus on uh, Vision Zero and our Crossing Guards program. So Vision Zero, as you all know, is our policy uh, to eliminate traffic deaths in San Francisco by 2024. Our work at SFMTA is really targeted along what we call high injury corridors or the places where most people are getting severely injured or fatally injured in our streets. Um, the data used to create Vision Zero prioritizes children, seniors, seniors and other vulnerable population groups. This is a map showing our high injury network, our Vision Zero priority network, and all the schools. We'll also provide you later on with a list of all of the schools that are next to our high priority network. As part of the development of Walk First in support of Walk, I'm sorry, in support of Vision Zero, we used Walk First uh, as the pedestrian um, planning for uh, to support Vision Zero, and this really focused in on our vulnerable populations, including children. So this is just a map showing all the collision profiles that match with children in the city. Uh, and Walk First in support of Vision Zero identified uh, the 6% of the city streets where 60% of the collisions occur. And right now we're in phase one of that $50 million program. We are putting in the initial quick investments. Those are already going in the ground. Uh, we're writing work orders every day for things like more visible crosswalks, countdown signals, red visibility curbs, turn prohibitions, and protected left turns. This is just an example of a uh, advanced stop bar. You can see the white stop bar and the vehicles are complying and stopping behind that and not encroaching into the crosswalk. So these may seem like simple uh, paint that's just going in the street, but it does really make a difference in how comfortable it is to walk around the city. As part of Vision Zero, we also have an extensive traffic calming program that was recently revised to focus on residential traffic calming. And a pilot program is currently underway. The work orders have been sent for arterial traffic calming along Turk, Guerrero, and 16th Street. We will evaluate that uh, system. That's a way of changing the signal timing so that cars have to go slower. So we're using the signals to slow the cars down and reduce the speeds. Um, the current criteria for our traffic calming program is, uh, has additional points for proximity to specific land use, including schools, parks, community centers. Um, schools are also prioritized when they have the 15 mile per hour zone because we use that as our baseline. So when we see speeding, if someone's going 20 miles per hour or over, they automatically get put into our system. 
system. And any school can apply for traffic calming through our residential traffic calming program. The Safe Routes to School program has two big components. One is capital and one is the non-infrastructure. This is a map of all the non-infrastructure programs uh, currently in our Safe Routes to School program. There's 25 this year. We're planning on 35 next year. I wanted to go through some of the capital programs and then some of the education and enforcement programs that we have. So currently we just completed Jefferson Elementary. Uh, walking to school this fall just became a lot safer. Uh, recent construction of pedestrian safety improvements using Proposition K half cent local sales tax funds. Uh, we constructed bulb outs at the intersection of 18th and Irving and 17th and Judah. These bulb outs improve pedestrian safety for students and nearby residents by decreasing the pedestrian crossing distances, improving pedestrian visibility and reducing vehicle speeds. We also implemented in 2012 15 mile per hour zones around 181 schools. This allows us to do much more engineering and enforcement in those locations, reducing speeds and uh, certainly increasing safety in those areas. This is a map of all the 15 mile per hour zones across the city. You can see it's pretty extensive. We are restricted by the state to only putting this in locations that are 500 feet from a school and only a two lane road or smaller. And getting into the program side, this is some data that's collected by UC Berkeley. This is for all schools in San Francisco. The walking rate is at its highest rate ever. This uh, study has been um, going on since 2010. It's the highest rate ever for kindergarten, fifth, and sixth grades since it was started in 2010. The vast majority of individual schools with the highest rate of walkers also have 75% or more of their student body on the free or reduced lunch program. So there's definitely an equity issue here with large populations of underserved kids. Biking has been under 3% every year since the survey started, so there's a lot more work to do there. Uh, approximately 25% of elementary students live within a half mile of their schools, so that's a realistic distance for them to walk. And that drops dramatically when we get to sixth grade, and it, it drops to 7% to when we get to sixth grade and 4% when we get to ninth grade. And then this is a survey that's done just of the schools that participate last year in the Safe Routes to School program. So we saw walk trips increase at nine of the 15 schools. Uh, that's 60%, and bike trips increased at six of the schools. That was a 40% of the schools saw an increase. The family vehicle trips stayed about the same, and walking was second only to the family vehicle as the most popular mode of travel to and from schools. And excluding distance, the greatest barriers allowing children to walk and bike to school are still the safety of intersections, the speed of traffic, and the amount of traffic is the top three. So we have a lot of work to do there. And just to introduce our crossing guard program, which has been very popular. Um, this is application-based. Any school can request it. Some of the criteria is it needs to be the K through eight. Uh, a corner must be designated as a school crossing and have the yellow um, crosswalk and a minimum of 300 vehicles an hour and 10 pedestrians every 10 minutes. We also offer free training for volunteers. If schools have volunteers who would like to add additional help or new help or locations that don't qualify. We have approximately 172 guards at about 103 schools, and we proactively work with the schools on pedestrian and parking safety issues around the schools, especially during arrival and dismissal time. Currently, Bashir uh, is visiting schools that have been noted as having a double parking problem. He's also working with schools to improve their drop-off and pickup procedures. 
And just to talk a little bit about Bessie Carmichael, which I like to think of as a success story. Um, it's surrounded by arterials. It has a lot of bridge traffic. It has a very high walking mode share, greater than 30%. It has some large capital projects, including 7th Street, that are in the works, but they're many years away. And so we worked very closely with Supervisor Kim's office uh, and school staff to uh, put in a leading pedestrian interval at 7th and Folsom. We did signal timing adjustment to allow for more time to cross the street at 7th and Howard. We added school area signs. We daylighted the intersections, meaning we put in the red curb to pull the parking back. And then we have a traffic calming uh, procedure in place for nearby Sherman Alley. And then another one that Supervisor Kim mentioned uh, is Jean Parker. And this is also a school along a very large arterial on Broadway in the entrance to the Broadway Tunnel. Uh, the Safe Routes to School money was incorporated into a much larger streetscape program, and this allowed us more time and funding to make uh, significant changes. So this is what it looks like today, and this is what we are hoping it will look like very soon. We'll have new landscape, new curbs, new ramps, new islands to make it safer for everyone in the community. Thank you very much. There's my contact information. Uh, Commissioner Mendoza, uh, su Supervisor Campos. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, and again, it's great to see uh, all these folks uh, who, in one way or another, have been connected to the school district over the years. Thank you very much for your presentation, and thank you for um, you know recognizing the very important personal side to to the the critical work you do. Uh, one question that I know comes up uh, with some of my schools in my district from time to time is the uh, interaction between the the shuttles, the the uh, so-called tech shuttles, and uh, the schools, especially as parents are trying to drop kids off and uh, or pick kids up. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, sort of, if you have any comments or thoughts on that in terms of whether or not that, uh, you know, how the MTA deals with those, those issues uh, and uh, whether or not that's something that's, uh, that's a recurring problem. Uh, I know that uh, for schools uh, like Horace Band, Buena Vista Horace Band, that's been an issue. I'm just wondering if you could comment on that. Thank you. Thanks. I have not heard that complaint, so I'm glad to hear it now. And we can certainly have an engineer go out and meet with the folks at Horseman and see what we could do for them. Great. Thank you. Commissioner Fewer. Sorry, I had to turn my microphone on. So, um, so it seems like the Board of Education really is the only public entity or city entity that has not adopted a um, vision Zero policy, and yet it's something that we take very seriously. Personally, my husband spent the last nine years of his 35-year career as a police officer as a traffic officer on, as a solo motorcyclist, and one of his main jobs was to um, respond to traffic accidents and fatalities. And he would come home and tell me about all the fatalities, and we were shocked at the number of them. I think that um, we are interested at the San Francisco Unified School District 
um, to look into what kind of policies that we can support so that our schools can encourage safe walking and more bicycling, particularly around areas that have uh, low car ownership and also where there has been high injury, where they're near high injury corridors. And so I think um, I just want to mention also Norman Yee, Supervisor Yee's efforts around, I just went out to Lakeshore Elementary School, which is a great improvement, Supervisor Yee, having a designated lane for drop-off for every day in the morning, which used to be a nightmare, quite frankly. And so I think as, and also training, I think what we've seen is that enforcement with education has given us really positive results. And this um, school crossing guard program has educated, I feel like, the whole school community, students and parents alike. And so we, I think it's a positive thing, and I want to thank Supervisor Yee for bringing that to our public schools. Commissioner Mendoza. Thank you. Thank you. I was curious, I've always been a little curious about this, but the curb cut that has the yellow with the bubbles, what is that? And why, I mean, why, why do we have bubbles now? And I only notice it when I'm walking across the street in heels. <laughs> that's, that's designed for people who have sight disabilities, and mm. it's a way that they can feel. It's typically a different material, but it also has what we call truncated domes so that they can feel the difference. Uh, it's also yellow because that's the very last color you lose when you're losing your sight. When, when you're losing? Losing your sight. Oh, wow. Oh, very good. Thank you. I, I actually have asked the same question to SFMTA because I've tripped many times in heels yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on the yellow yeah, rubber curves. First of all, thank you for this presentation and for working so closely with our office um, on this presentation, but also on some of the case studies that I think some of our schools that are most impacted, at least by high-speeding cars. Um, it's certainly continues to be an issue even in our residential enclaves as well. Um, and I know Supervisor Yee has been doing a lot of work um, um, in, that, in that part of town to make sure that we are making um, routes to school safer. I am really interested um, in two pieces. One is, um, as, as Commissioner Fewer uh, mentioned, increasing the mode of walking and biking and public transit. It, it actually, we do have, um, it, the numbers are not bad. They're, I mean, at least for high school, it looks, or ninth grade, 64% of students walk, bike, or take public transit, um, which I think is a really healthy number. And, um, you know, roughly 38%, um, 35, 39%, it looks like kindergarten, fifth, and sixth grade. Um, it's interesting that there's kind of a dip at fifth grade. Um, but it looks like there's an increase in carpooling. So I, I'm curious about you know what what has worked in increasing um, walk and bike mode. I mean, bike is clearly struggling the most um, as a as a mode uh, to get to school. Um, but what has been successful in getting more of our families um, to walk and bike um, if that is a choice for them? And you know uh, what have we been doing to educate families who have to walk? and take public transit to schools to make sure that they are safe while doing so. I'm going to invite Anna up. Good afternoon, commissioners and supervisors. My name is Anna Velidzik. Um, I manage the non-infrastructure part of Safe Routes to School. Um, so just make sure I capture all the elements of your question, Supervisor Kim. It's what has, what has worked to increase walk mode share 
Um, and um, what can we be doing um, for those that have no choice but to walk? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, um, so we started our program in 2009, and we launched the survey the year after, and we did it right before the student assignment system had the... Um, the policy changes, and I do want to recognize that there are some families that get assigned to a school that, frankly, is so far away that walk and biking is not realistic. Um, we do have almost 25 to 35 percent, which is actually really high in comparison to the state. Um, the walk mode share is around 15%. I don't have comparable numbers to other cities, but that's pr- where I think San Francisco is doing really well. One of the things that we do in our program is establish, help parents establish walking school buses and bike trains at the participating schools so that, and I want everyone to understand, we are not asking children to walk to school by themselves. It's with families. It's with an adult chaperone. It's with a volunteer at the school. Um, we have walk and roll to school day. We have bike to school week. Those are our launch points to show families that this is realistic, um, that this is, um, I, I, do, I do recall in 2011, we did it at Marshall Elementary when it was part of your district, and now it's now part of your district. Um, and we asked the parents to consider it at Kid Power Park, which was just west of 16th Bar Station, and they couldn't fathom that location. And it's literally just three blocks away. And so many parents came up to me at the end. I was like, that was so easy. <laughs> and it's so close. And I, I don't... Parents, I'm a parent myself, lead very busy lives, and I'm not sure they consider some of those options unless we help at least launch it, and then they can own it themselves. So those are some of the examples. I think biking still has a long way to go. Um, part of it is what we hear in our parent comments is that they honestly don't feel safe with the volume of traffic and some of the infrastructure to put their younger children in, in, in the streets. Um, I do see an increase, I think, in the um, preschool ages because they are attached to their parents' bicycles, but when they're on a standalone young bike on their own, that's when parents, I think, start to feel really uncomfortable. And we have a long way to go on that. I also feel like with the advent of electric bikes, that makes it a lot easier with our topography that we have in San Francisco, but that is for um, those that can afford it, and that is not electric bikes are not for everybody. What we are doing for the families that have no choice but to walk is that we want to increase the safety element of that because, for example, Gene Parker, they have well over 60% of their student body walking because they honestly all live there. They have no choice to walk there. But it is not the safest environment and the example of the Broadway streetscape is what we we can be doing to make sure that it's much safer for those families to do that. So that's where Vision Zero really um, comes in to help focus because the, the young families, and I'm very proud to say that so far, no child on the way to school Goodness. Has, has been hit or injured. So I'm very glad to say that. Mm. I'm a sap. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> So we we love the emotion, <laughs> and um, and just so you know, um, this is 
at least, you know, this is a board that cried a lot at school board <laughs> meetings together. Like, oh, like he's every other week. Of it. So we're very used to it. Uh, I think you got two so divorce board members. Cry. Cry. <laughs> we cried so much on the school board. Really? Yeah, in public, at public meetings. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, that's I good. It's, it's on record. That's so, that it's still continued so on. It's, it's a big difference. It was actually a big difference for me when I joined the board of supervisors. Nobody cries. Well, no, it happened. Supervisor Yee. It happens still, but it, I'm glad to say space. I'm very happy to say that that the no school children have been um, part of the data for Vision Zero. Let's just leave it at that, and I like to keep it that way. I'll excuse myself now. No, no, thank you so much for that. Um, the actually, and I'm, I'm sorry, Anna, I'm going to bring you back up. But the last question was actually on the the carpool. Because um, yes. I remember that came up at last year's hearing was trying to figure out different programs to help uh, families carpool. Because we yes. know that the reality, especially with some of our district-wide schools, is that, as you mentioned, that parents are going to continue to drive. And so even That's reducing right. the number of vehicles on the road um, you know, helps us get to... So there are a number of issues there. Um, one is that the Department of Environment at the time had a grant called School Pool, which has now um, ended. Mm -hmm. So we are trying to pick up some elements of that, but we don't have the level of funding that we once had. The other issue that I hear anecdotally is that carpooling is very easy for families that have children that are out of the car seats. Car seats take up so much space um, and trying to fit those all in. So I, we as a team have not figured out how to incorporate those strategies yet. I'd like to take the summer break to sort of take the time to figure that out. But I think ages eight and above, and that's why you see it increase in middle and high school, I think that's really where um, a lot of the carpooling um, opportunities are, 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 we can be maximizing. But we are not doing enough that um, we, we could be doing on that. Yeah. And there's also, there, it's just frankly, I think, a trust issue um, with families. It, it's, you can't get too far away on a, on a walking or on a bike, but someone that you don't, you need to know the driver in a, in a carpooling situation. So it's really a very grassroots, organic school community uh, building, a community building exercise that we need to, to build. But I, I think we, we, we can help provide that. Yeah. I, I, you know, and I'd be certainly interested in looking at our school district folks. Um, I feel like that's something that, you know, should also happen from within the district is some of that community building that needs to happen because you know the one at school pool is great but you know for parents that don't have access to internet or computers at home or a smartphone you know they're not going to be able to um, be able to figure out how to get families together you know for those families that do drive which there are many and so I you know it'd be great to kind of work with the school district to see what are some homegrown solutions that would work within schools and you know the successful models that work you know bringing them out to to other schools with similar, similar populations. Uh, Commissioner Fewer and then Supervisor Yee. Sure, I just wanted to mention that the school board is considering also amending their student assignment um, preferences to include neighborhood or proximity, attendance area, um, to be a third factor instead of the fourth factor in preference. I, I, I am well aware of that. I, I, I've seen... Um, the the media around that and I'm I wasn't sure where when it was going to be heard ag again. Um, is it been 
scheduled or moving forward? Yes, it is. And so in April, we're going to hear from a panel of experts around what the effect really of on neighborhoods, quite frankly, of our student assignment process. Mm -hmm. And so we're getting a bunch of experts together. Okay. And then I think it's going to, going to come before the vote of the full board in the spring, later in the spring. <clears throat> Supervisor Yu. Thanks for the presentation. Just a quick thought. Um, I, I'm wondering if it's worth um, considering, you know how oh, sometimes I, I, when um, you're in one habit of doing something and it's hard to change those habits, and then uh, I forgot who mentioned, but it's one of these things, oh, I actually walked there and it wasn't that bad. Um, and sometimes it, it takes a little motivation to get somebody to actually uh, experience that, and then all of a sudden it's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. And would, would it, if we were, if you were to get like a, a bunch of um, those bands or whatever, maybe the cheaper versions, where they count the steps and just hand it out to all, all the kids and make that a contest uh, for the families uh, walking to school once they have a safe route, would that work? We give out a lot of incentives for walk and roll to school day. You may see them in your school communities. They have these belt wraps on their backpacks that are retroflective, and they say, be safe, be seen. And then we have these little zipper pulls that they put on their backpacks that have the logo that say safe routes to school. Those are wildly popular. And um, you should mark your calendars, bike and roll to school week is April, the week of April 20th to 24th, and we have an incentive of a free, a raffle to get, to win an electric bike. Um, and that has already gotten at least 100 signups, and we're, we're, it's not even March yet. So the, you're absolutely right. The role of incentives with families is really key, both for the students and, and for the families, and we're, we're trying to offer um, for both populations. So, so I guess I'm, I'm suggesting take it even further, um, not just having one prize, but um, I don't want to say Fitbit, but uh, whatever, there's cheap models where your pedometers or whatever they're called, uh, and then just give it to any kid. We could look into that, but it would be, frankly, it would be a budget issue to, to come up with the, for, for the, are you saying for the, Entire school district? No, 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 no. I, I, I understand this is going to be it's a resource issue. Um, but if you were to do a pilot in one school or two schools mm -hmm. where there's some safe routes and just a good percentage of people you thought maybe could be walking but they're not, and you did this contest, for instance, in, in which uh, in, in they could, whatever way you want to do it, you know, for the week, uh, how many steps you'd take. Uh, and and and, it, and they sustained that habit, right? As a pilot project, and you could prove, oh, look at this, uh, we went from fifteen percent to thirty percent walking. You could get more resources, sure. but it's not about doing the whole school district. No, no, no. Right, I, I hear what you're saying. You're saying a pilot it in a couple of schools. We'll definitely consider that. Thank you, Supervisor Campos. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, just uh, just a brief uh, comment. Uh, I want to 
thank the MTA. We had a situation uh, at uh, John O'Connell High School where there has been a relocation where of, of, uh, or the placement of an additional school on that campus, and the MTA was very responsive in sort of addressing additional transportation needs with respect to bus uh, routes and whatnot. And I would simply encourage you, and I'm glad that you're watching what's happening with the student assignment piece, uh, but it is not just the student assignment piece, but it's also the program placement. You know, if there are changes to programs uh, in terms of the location of those programs, there are often uh, implications around the, the, the need to maybe change buses or add buses. Um, so just encourage you to continue to monitor that. Great, thank you. Thank you. I just had one quick follow-up actually to Supervisor Campos's question earlier about um, our shuttle bus program. Um, are, are there a lot of um, shuttle bus stops near our schools? Do you have a sense of the number? I don't, but I could put that map together for you. Yeah, no, that would be great to hear. I, those buses are really big and the drivers are very high above the ground. And so, you know, I would be concerned near our elementary schools the site of line and the education work we're doing with those um, drivers. Yep. And, and actually, I can't remember. I know that uh, we just announced our large vehicle education curriculum for those that contract with the city. It's a little different through the permitting process. And so I'm wondering if um, programs that we permit through, like the shuttle program, if they'll um, be engaging in the large vehicle education program. I don't know, but I'll look into that. I, I think that's really important that uh, our shuttle bus drivers, um, often driving very, very large vehicles um, through some of our narrow streets, um, get that education on how to share the road as well. I agree. Thank you. Okay. So seeing no further comments, I wanted to open up for public comment on this item. So if you have any comments, please do come up. Good afternoon, Commissioners and Supervisors. I'm Janara Skarsiga, Family and Schools Program Coordinator. I work on the non-infrastructure piece that Darby talked about. And um, one thing that we've been trying to do at Walk San Francisco is connect uh, families to engineering improvements. Um, one of the things that, as you guys know, just talked about, um, there's certain roads that don't qualify to be um, school zones. And we think it's especially critical that um, there's improvements centered around these areas. Um, these are the, the schools that are near these areas are usually bordering high injury corridors. So it's, we think it's that much more important to be ambitious with uh, pedestrian improvements and traffic calming. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other members of the public that would like to comment on this item? Seeing none, public comment is closed. Um, colleagues, any closing comments? No. Okay, great. Um, I just wanted to thank again um, our departments for being here today. Look forward to the continuing dialogue and also the passage of a Vision Zero resolution at the Board of Education, but also really being able to flesh out what that will mean at the school district and how the city can support um, the district in that work uh, above and beyond the partnerships that have already been created. Um, but I, uh, I, you know, I think we want to continue. Uh, ensuring that none of our kids are part of um, our, our data points. And, uh, you know, I just want to thank the staff. The passion is really clear. And I just want to say is from 
a policymaker's perspective, it is so great to hear, um, you know, that our staff care so deeply about the policies that we that you are pursuing and actually implementing on the ground. So thank you for your passion um, that you bring to this work. Um, it really matters a lot to our families and kids. So um, thank you, committee members. Uh, you know, we continue. We have a number of hearing items that will um, be set for March, April, May. But I do encourage our colleagues to um, give us more ideas and call for hearings as well um, here at the school and uh, City Select Committee. Um, Mr. Clerk, are there any other items? Well, Madam Chair, we will be entertaining a motion to continue this to the call of the chair. Um, I, I can, we can either take a motion to continue if you'd like this to come back to us within this year. Um, otherwise, I'll take a motion to file. I would think that I was thinking about another agenda item that's related, which is the student crossing guard program that okay. I'd like to bring. I don't know if it's going to be, it should be part of this or it's just a separate item. It, it actually, okay. So why don't we um, take a motion to file? I, I do hope this is an annual hearing um, at the select committee, um, but we'll take, uh, why don't we entertain a motion to file? We have a motion and we can do that without opposition. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Are there any other items or actions? There are no more items, Madam Chair. Seeing none, meeting is adjourned.